Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Eric Weiss joins us to talk Joe versus Udoka. Break down some of the fringe roster guys and my one-man mission to have every episode talk about Gallo trades. Next on First to the Floor. Who's going to be first to the floor? Hey everybody, Wayne Spoonie here, first to the floor. We have a very special guest for you today, one of the smartest ball knowers in all of basketball. Uh, but first, I'm going to introduce Ben. Hey, Ben, how's it going, buddy? <laughs> I'm going well. If we can get through this little mini offseason between preseason games, I'll, I'll feel a lot better. But, you know, looking forward to some Celtics basketball around the corner and excited for our guest today. Yeah, we've got Eric Weiss with us. He's the founder of Sports Aptitude, the director of partnerships with Lucio Sports. And you might know his work from his days at Draft Express, uh, one of the most knowledgeable guys in the NBA and a Troy McClure level resume. Uh, so, Eric, <laughs> how you doing, my man? I'm doing pretty good. I um, appreciate you guys uh, having me on. Been hounding Wayne in the uh, DMs <laughs> of Twitter with my random ideas for a minute. So glad to be on here and share them with some other people. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, I appreciate having you on. I appreciate uh, talking with you all the time uh, on, on the DMs, man. It's uh, great to bounce off ideas with you. So uh, why don't we run through a little bit of your background here in case people don't know what you're about. When did you get started in basketball? What's your what's your background? Uh, well, as a native Bostonian, you could say growing up yeah. in the 80s, I probably got started in basketball at birth. Um, but technically, um, 2003, I think it was, 2003, 2004, uh, been out of college for a couple years, trying to figure out how this internet thing, you know, worked, was uh, messing around on message board forums. And... Uh, Somebody put up a basically a looking for writers thing for what was then Draft City, um, which would then soon be Draft Express. And I just put in a, a writing sample that I had used to apply to actually a marketing position with the Celtics. Um, and that got me uh, that got me a gig <laughs> writing on the blog uh, for DX. And then my mother's uh, timeshare got us uh, free accommodations <laughs> for summer league that year and John and I hit it off and the rest is history. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, um, you are also the founder of what seems like a really interesting concept in terms of um, you know analyzing player development in sports aptitude. Can you give us an idea or a better understanding of what sports aptitude is? Yeah, so I'll tell you what it originated as. Uh, that, is, that was about 17 years worth of my life uh, doing this. Um, so... My father's a clinical psychologist and he came out to one of those summer leagues and we, you know, started, you know, exchanging notes about trying to figure out upside. Um, And we just started having a conversation about, uh, you know, just a common heuristic, which is all of us have a tendency 
to project our own mindsets into the players, you know, that we look at. So why doesn't he do this? And why, how come he can't right. do that? If I was him and it's, and so <laughs> it was just a small paradigm shift uh, right there. And I started thinking about that. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's true. Um, we got to pay a lot more attention to like who that individual is and try to get a better understanding. Um, and so I just took, I borrowed some of the stuff that he had used in his practice and what he had done with some just mainstream corporate HR hiring stuff, right? This standardized personality assessment stuff. And I applied it. It was just an extra piece of data, right? You got to understand this right. was like, I think this predated synergy by one year. So I'm like carbon dating myself here. Like this is a long time <laughs> ago. Like stats were not quoted in articles level a long time ago three search pages on Yahoo search engine a long time ago, but for the viewers that have no understanding why this is a thing. Um, but basically uh, it was just another data point and it was really just a way to work with the, the process that we were developing at DX at that point, which was just, you know, turning into a massive major scouting service, which didn't really exist right at the time. Um, but it was just another piece of information because we were going all over the place and we were interviewing these guys. We were talking to their agents and their family. You know, we had all these great conversations and I just wanted a little bit more information to basically what I used to explain it as is like forensic detective work. I just wanted to know a little bit more about um, potentially about the person because these are first person responses for anybody that's not familiar with personality assessments, right? These are the guys answering questions and it's not like the holy grail, but what it helps do is contextualize, you know, it gives you a little bit more information to contextualize, well, why did someone act the way they did, right? Situation behavior, we're always trying to figure out why people are doing the things that they're motivated to do. So getting a little more information directly from the player uh, about, you know, kind of how they, how they think and how, and what they value is a useful tool for, uh, you know, trying to make more sense, right. Of what's going on. Yeah, Eric, let me ask you this. Um, and you can find Eric's work uh, on Ask Jeeves. That's usually my search engine of choice from the 90s. But uh, <laughs> uh, what, uh, so uh, how, by your estimation back then when you were first coming up, how many teams were doing stuff like that? Because to me now, and I think partly because of the work you have done with Draft Express and beyond that, that seems like a very obvious thing for a team to do nowadays. Like you better figure out the personality and you hear Ainge talk about it. And now Brad talk about part of what drew them to Jalen Brown and Tatum was their personality and how hard of workers they were. So like how much of like the league was doing that back then? Uh, I don't want to, I'm sure that there'll be plenty of people that will disagree, but in my experience and, and, we're working with about two thirds of the league at about year four through year 12. Um, there was a lot of, uh, like, I think every team had a team psychologist, maybe on retainer, probably some local, you know, some local person that they got a referral yeah. to. Um, but really integrating, like trying to get a process based approach to accounting for that as an actual part of the personnel evaluation versus just maybe like a structured interview or having someone generally available for health and well-being, right? Like a more formal integration that's really i think taken place over the last five to seven years um to the point where i think every team or almost every team has a full-time person they're integrated into the performance science you know uh process and it's it's a it's a significant piece of you know of the process 
Yeah, uh, that I mean, that's all fascinating to me. It's well beyond my expertise. Uh, so it's very, it's very interesting. And I think that it probably works more often than it doesn't. But I bet you have some very famous misses. Uh, but you know, that, that happens. Nothing's 100%. I'm not going to ask you about any of those. But uh, anyway, so I, I think, you know, as you said, you're from Boston, you're a Celtics fan. I don't know if you're down. I think we should jump in, talk a little, little C's here. And specifically, uh, what I want to ask you first about Eric is, you might have heard the Celtics have a new head coach. Uh, his name is Joe Mazzula. Uh, so have you noticed anything in these early preseason games that uh, Joe is doing differently? And then let's focus on offense first. So, yeah, I was thinking about this uh, quite a bit today, um, off and on. And uh, just as a brief caveat, working with Lucio Sports right now, we do a lot of player education stuff. So we get a lot more into the delivery of what they're being taught, like the X's and O's and, you know, the film breakdowns and development planning. So I've gotten a new perspective on like the workflows that go into that. I just wanted to use that as a precursor to, to what we're going to talk about. But the, the first thing I've noticed um, is that the personnel is so much significantly different between injuries and new additions that like, it's really hard to draw a lot of conclusions on what's yeah. different versus the fact that, you switched variable, right? You switched the coach before we got to see this current incarnation of the roster. So I'd say a lot, I can't separate like Joe, you know, from Ime in that way. But I do think that, uh, you know, what everyone else has seen were clearly the intention before uh, the coaching uh, change was going to be to go small more often. I don't know why people didn't see that clearly with the amount of money invested in, in uh, the guards. Uh, there was just no way that that wasn't going to, you know, those guys are all going to play 25 plus minutes a game. And so I think that's a significant change. You look back at the statistics from last year, smaller sample size, but under Ime, uh, that, you know, all lineups with Rob or God, right? But like the the Tatum at the four with, uh, with Rob or Al Horford was a very effective lineup. Uh, and you can make arguments about, well, it was situationally applied and all that, but like, I do think that there's a lot more room, uh, you know, a lot more opportunity to play smaller because like he's not that Jason's not that small. And I think that's been the biggest no. difference. And the second part is Malcolm Brogdon is a bona fide third option scorer, And people have kind of undersold that. I'm like, okay, forget about the, the playmaking and the ball handling comps between Marcus Smart and Derek White and Brogdon. Brogdon is definitively the third best scorer on this team oh, by an yeah. order of magnitude. And I think that was the biggest thing that was missing last year beyond anything is a viable third threat. So we spent at least half of last year just getting used to the idea of double bigs and then even longer getting used to the idea of double bigs working with this investment in guards now with Brogdon and, and obviously why we've seen him in the starting lineup in the preseason so far. Are we going to have to shift our expectations as far as like standardized lineups for the Celtics? And do you think that double bigs is something that we're sort of going to go away from long term? So I'm going to break out my HR hat here for a second, which I'm sure <laughs> waiting will like here. But like, hell yeah, I talk about transition planning all the time. Transition planning is probably the boringest and most important thing to talk about. And in, in with the amount of roster churn, Al Horford is 36. So no matter what, 
something has to happen. And, and when we get into personnel acquisitions later, right, and we can go more HR internal hiring or internal development versus external hiring. Uh, but um, Al Horford's don't grow on trees. And so I think some Damn. of this is just like, yeah, you'd love to go double big forever, but you're not going to just do it because a guy is big. And I think that's what you're seeing a little bit is that going small was a viable option from a talent on the floor standpoint versus a maybe what would you you know do in a perfect world if you could like clone Al Horford and make him 22 years old again. Um, so I think that this is a necessary season to explore what the potential is here because that's going to inform a lot of what you do from a personnel standpoint going forward. Even if you get an extension and you get a repeat of last year's performance, you have to be looking at what your avenues are for life after Al Horford. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as actually, this feeds in kind of to our next uh, topic I want to get with you. So I'm just going to try and dovetail this all up nicely, and I will probably uh, miss the <laughs> landing. So I apologize in advance. But life after Al Horford, I think, is something I, I said at the beginning of the, of the offseason, that should be priority number one. And nothing really happened there. So I wonder if uh, Tatum at the four is life after Al Horford or or they're thinking they have a slightly smaller, slightly squatter Al Horford and Grant Williams. Are you getting any indication, Eric, that they're leaning one way or another? Um, well, no. And that's what's interesting about this season, right? If you're always looking at personnel, you have the three guards. One of them could theoretically be tradable. But then you also have Grant Williams and the extension. And I think that this is why it's so important when you talk about internal development um, is that they need this season to see what works well between them. It's been really interesting in the preseason to see Grant Williams, Grant Williams, you know, taking a step back to the to the personality stuff second, like he was definitely a guy that you would bank on as a will max out all of the talent. Yeah. that he has. He definitely is one of those guys that you ident- you see right away and you're like, oh, oh yeah. And he has all the measurable and observable indicators. You're like, I don't know what he can do, but he's going to do 100% of it. That being said, <laughs> the squatter, the squatter, shorter, like he can do a lot and he's looking really interesting, but you have to see what that looks like. But he could be an elite backup, you know, big in a three and a half big rotation, or he could be a viable replacement, but he is not Al Horford in terms of, I mean, he's not Al Horford period right now but like in terms of the size that it, that Al Horford represents Al Horford is a great rim deterrent player uh, Grant is an amazing positional defender but it's not it's not a one to one ratio so i think that's where you have to see what situations you can put him in and extend and and see what he can do and at the same time you're also going to be looking at you know those those multiple guard rotation uh options with uh, with Tatum um at the four and really saying, I mean, you've even seen the the Tatum at the five stuff, which I don't know how much we're going to whip that out, but I'm sure that it'll, it'll, you know, show itself, you know, time and again. But that's where I think it's the most interesting stuff. It's basically Grant Williams and the three guards, I think, is really going to what, what will determine what the next summer looks like or maybe the trade deadline if, you know, depending on how the market shakes out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sticking with Grant Williams, I, I suppose he segues into this next point quickly. And, and Spoonie, if you want to go back to the, the coaching differences after this, we can. Looking up and down the roster, and I suppose we can continue talking about Grant Williams here. 
Are there any like specific skill developments that you've noticed or alternatively, is there someone that you've noticed a, a lack of skill development in where you, you wished that they had, had showed up to training camp having developed something, but it doesn't appear to have been the case uh, so far? Um, on Williams, I think that what's been most interesting, I don't even know if it's skill development as much as it is mindset. Like I, I've been trying, you know, I've been looking at the camera and be like, how does he lean down a little bit? He's always thick. So I, I don't know on that side, but I do know that his, his mind has always been his best weapon, right? By far. And if you watched him in Tennessee, different situation, obviously, uh, in terms of kind of like positioning, playing on the post more, but a lot of what he was really good at is being just basically aware of everything that's happening on the court. And I see that like intention. I see him moving faster based on uh, you know, what I think is just intent. He's setting things up the whole, like, you know, reading three moves ahead stuff. He's making, he's making the intention to attack and knowing that, uh, you know, kind of how defenders are defending him. And I've loved him keeping his head up and making reads going towards the basket and being smart with his dribble and not over committing in long striding. Like you saw a little bit last year when he went, you know, that length would become an issue because he'd commit and the guy would be able to, you don't need to be in perfect position to challenge, you know, Grant at the basket because he just doesn't have length and explosive lift. So he has to do it with craft. But what I've seen in the, you know, albeit limited possession so far in preseason is he's playing that drive with his head up. I loved that yeah. that play the other night where Hosser cut from the elbow and he he dovetailed his dribble basically out to the right. He knew that he had an outlet on the elbow, you know, close side, and he basically took the extra dribble to get that defender in the middle uh, to commit to him and then hit and then hit Hauser right there. And I think that's the kind of stuff that takes advantage of his kind of court awareness. It's just a different application of it, but it's the same skill that you saw um, when he was in college. And that's where I think it, uh, the most development uh, I've seen, I guess, in his game is the most potential for, for more. Yeah, he threw an oop to someone as the ball handler out of like a pick and roll. I can't remember that ever happening last year. Certainly. And he's been playing the cat and mouse game when he has gotten inside because, I mean, the teams will adjust, which is still a good thing, but they're not going to just yeah. go full tilt at that shot if he's going to keep on smoking him with like minimal fakes basically he's just like i'm going to slow down a second they're like oh you're going to shoot like that'll have to evolve but when he is gaining the lane he's playing with like you saw it on the i think the missed floater the other day he was trying to set up i don't remember who was rolling with him i think it was blake in the paint but he was definitely trying to get the commitment from that defender to get like that option and i don't care what the end result was of that play i think he's got great touch and he can make a lot of floaters personally, but like the idea of that intent of what you're going to do after you beat that primary defender, that's the stuff that's most interesting to me with him. And I think he's got a lot once, you know, gaining the lane is one thing. That's where he's at a deficit from an athleticism standpoint. But once he can get inside, if he can set himself up and get past the primary, I have no doubt he can be a plus facilitator if the team is going to, you know, move off ball around him and create opportunities for him to find them. Yeah, that's really exciting, uh, and it's good to hear from a, you know an analytical mind such as yourself that that the eye test kind of checks out in that sense. Um, continuing down the roster in, in terms of other skill developments, I think that the the fan base in general sees a bump from Jalen Brown's perspective. Like it's clear that he's come back better. 
From from your perspective, what specifically does he seem to have improved about his game? We compared him somewhat jokingly to 91 Michael Jordan on the podcast a couple of days ago. Obviously, that's not factual. Um, curious to hear your thoughts on specifically those developments. He's better. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you for correcting yeah, me, Spoonie. Don't do him any favors, guys. Don't, don't help the, the social discourse on Taylor Brown at all. Um, he looks humongous for one, like he's always yeah. been Tony's always been strong, but he looks just thick right now without like, this is the, this is the, the strongest version of him that I think I've seen. Um, from a, from a handling standpoint, I honestly think that last season was somewhat of an aberration. He was on a very steep trajectory in my estimation, like two seasons ago, go watch the first San Antonio Spurs game where he has like 46 points. He's doing all the handles. Like, I think that having the wrist injury and messing up, like, these guys are creatures of habit. And the offseason, well, I don't remember the old Magic Johnson uh, quote, but, like, the offseason is where you add to your game, right? And if you have to do rehab all the time and your thing was ball handling and one of your hands was, like, inactive <laughs> for most of the offseason, I think he slid a little bit. I think I think that we're just seeing – a combination of, yeah, learning what didn't work in, you know, in the playoffs or whatever. So there's a mental component to it. And then also getting back to what I think he was already doing, which is getting more solid with his ball handling, which we had already seen, you know, improvements from previously. Um, and again, it's preseason, right? You're seeing this is like not, you know, how it's going to be. But I think that the most important thing is that these guys have tremendous self-awareness, uh, which, you know, everybody's disappointed when they lose in the playoffs or losing the finals, but not every player really knows how to be introspective and, and really ingest like criticism, constructive or otherwise. Right. Um, because they are so good and he is so good, but I, I think that's the most special thing about Tatum and Brown and why I've been enamored with them for so long is like, you can say what they want, what you want about vocal leadership or any of this other stuff. These guys see things, they ingest it. And then they change, which sounds simple, but the higher up the food chain you get in the NBA, the less frequent you get that type of response to stimuli. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost takes like a humble mindset to be like, you know what, I just need to get better at this. It, even though like Jalen was always really weird because even at Cal, his handle was like, he would do these like advanced dribble moves at full speed and he'd be like, holy shit. And then he'd like run a simple pick and roll and somebody would pick his pocket very easily. So he's always been kind of a Jekyll and Hyde type ball handler. But yeah, that's a great point. I mean, he literally couldn't use one of his hands for an entire off season. <laughs> so maybe that had something to do with it. Um, speaking of uh, exciting uh, Celtics that will probably make an all-star appearance this year. Sam Hauser has lit the world on fire. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think we've seen anything out of this world from Hauser as far as unexpected. He's just been pretty hot. Um, but are you a Sam Hauser believer? I mean, I guess really what I'm asking is, do you think he can be just good enough at defense where the Celtics can take advantage of his absolutely ridiculous flame throwing? Um, I hate hedging. It's always remains to be seen, but I will say this at six, seven at his, at his size, that's always an advantage. Not just like size from a height standpoint. He's a pretty solidly built guy, which NBA strength and conditioning is only going to improve. He's a, he's a, he's a guy that can bump. So you don't necessarily have to, I don't 
I think what we've seen with length on the court the last couple of years, which is something I always believe, so it's nice to see, is that like size can make up for a lot. It's not necessarily about stopping guys in defenses now. It's about chasing and knowing where your help is and basically getting people trapped in no man's land and being able to harry from behind. Just like when you're playing man defense, like getting up underneath the guy and bothering their dribble. A lot of defense is about rhythm. And, you know, you, you not a lot of guys are comfortable shooting with a lot of stuff moving around them. So in that sense, yeah, do I think he's going to play on the perimeter and just like, you know, do people like Ron Artest? Like, no, I don't think so. But like, if he's going to be intelligent about what he does, he can get people into positions where they're strategically getting caught in those, you know, those like eight to 12 foot, like, you know, really difficult conversion shots and make sure not to give up on those plays. Or you saw that deflection the other day where he didn't give up and space out after the play and he was able to make a deflection to the outlet. If he uses his intelligence, I think he can be fine. What's been more impressive, which I didn't see, and I got to be completely honest, I did not do, uh, what'd you say, divorce level um, (laughs) Yes, research, which is is awesome. Um, A great way of saying it. But but I've been super impressed with his shot setups, right? He's still doing like catch and shoot predominantly, but he is coming off motion. Like he had that backtrack to the corner shot where he barely had time to set his feet. He had that nice quick hitter uh, curling around on the the right elbow, I think it was. Uh, like those are like that was a big thing last year, which was just how predictably stationary all the outlet guys were. And it's like, yes, Jason and Jalen were being asked to overcreate, but nobody was moving around right. to c- cause any level of confusion. So the defenders could just be like, cool, I'll play the drive. I know where the guy is over here. And you could basically just like, you didn't have to have line of sight really because you knew where they would be. And having a guy that can relocate like that and as a legitimate threat, not only does that improve the shot making, but it also increases the level of defensive disruption because you have to account for that type of thing. And they really haven't had really anybody. Like Tatum can obviously dribble, self-create threes, and that's great, but they don't have a lot of move shooters. Right. That hasn't been something that's in their roster. And I think that is the most intriguing thing for me, because that can really do a number of other than having a third score, which is clearly the biggest. How is there being a move shooter or his potential to do that? I think is significant. Yeah, uh, we lost you a little bit at the end, Eric, but I think you said that. the Hauser being a movement shooter was extremely <laughs> important. So uh, a couple things. One, uh, I have to have my one Neesmith mention. That's part of why I was so high on Aaron Neesmith was because I, I think he was active off ball and had the could have been a movement shooter yeah. on Hauser. He didn't show that last year at all. Um, even in Maine, really, I watched a lot of his possessions down there because, again, um I, I I'm trying, you know, trying to work myself into a divorce here. I'm just kidding. I love you. <laughs> uh, and he, he just really was very stationary. Maybe uh, he wasn't like, he wasn't taking shots where he had to like shift his shoulders, like almost like the back pedal. At least he's still squared up when he gets the pass, but yeah, coming off curls, stuff like that and really have to like turn and face the hoop and get squared up. He just was not good at that at all. So if that's an actual skill development, he's got, I think he raises his ceiling as as uh, as an offensive player quite a bit because he's a decent enough cutter, even though he can't really finish. Um, 
And on the defensive side, I should be writing about this, but I haven't started the second part of my Sam Hauser piece. Uh, he's he's kind of tough to move. Uh, when when he got that run against the Raptors, OG Ananobi and um, oh, what is his name? Achua, Preston Achua were were like you know licking their lips and posting him up, and he did a pretty good job, man. He held his own, so I think. There's something there. I really do. I think there's I think there's the outline of a very valuable rotation player there. And I can understand why they decided to commit to him and take him off the two-way. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean that might be if we're going back to the whole you know, Ime Joe thing. Obviously there's there's skill development there. I, I think that there's been work, uh, especially when you talk about the footwork and biomechanics involved in in doing you know, movement shooting. Uh, but it's a totally different thing. Like you said, being square and not being square, bending around and getting back and realigned is a completely different skill set. Um, but letting him do that kind of stuff, even if it's preseason, yeah. like you said, they, he didn't, that's what the G League's for. And he said he didn't see it down there. So clearly there wasn't some, hey, we should experiment with anything that remotely looks like that. So maybe that's, they did somewhere behind closed doors and it was that bad. And I mean, we have small sample size alert, but like it looked real comfortable. I mean, obviously he's been on fire and shots come and go, but process based, it did not look forced. It looked very smooth when he went into the, the small amount of movement shooting that he's done. And I feel like that has some intention behind it. If you're talking about off season development and then that comes from both parties. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, speaking from the standpoint of the trauma enforced on Celtics fans by the Aaron Neesmith experience, and I use the term trauma relative to sports fandom, obviously, uh, the, the biggest unanswered question is, like, can Sam Hauser act this way, perform at this level in the regular season? And in my mind, I'm setting, like, a bar of 10 games there, the first 10 games of the regular season. If he can continue to produce at that level, then maybe we can start to invest in him, at least emotionally, as Celtics fans, um, transitioning slightly, Eric, are you a, a Luke Cornett believer? Because I am not. I'm. I've been shocked all off season by this sudden confidence and reliance on like it's all good. We haven't necessarily signed a competent, you know, backup big, but we've had Luke Cornett, you know, under our nose this whole time, and suddenly we're going to be leaning on him quite heavily. Uh, do you believe believe in Luke Cornett, Eric? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I mean, to, to what extent? Yeah, I, I yeah. think that he can play. Do I see him as a future starting big man in the league? No, but I was, he caught my eye in college. I can't remember who his teammate was, um, drafted by the Warriors originally. It's escaping my mind now, but I remember the first time I, I, I checked in to watch, uh, Vandy, like, I was like, oh, this guy's kind of good. You know who I'm, I don't know if you remember who I'm talking about, but is he still in the league? I cannot remember what his name is to save my life. But anyways, I, that was the first time I saw him, and he just caught my eye with just I don't know. My initial scouting is usually just a feel based approach. I don't like to over analyze the guys and and kind of be like, oh, this guy's really good. That like they told me he's good, and then watch it. And so I kind of just like to tune in and see who catches my eye. And he made smart plays. He made some shots, which always helps. Um, and he has not translated that shooting into the kind of percentages. But anytime you can have a big that's seven, what is it, seven two yeah. with that <laughs> length and he has intelligence, like, yeah, he's not the most mobile guy, 
but you're looking at 48 minutes of coverage, right? And I think that there's some other more interesting options. Um, I don't know if you guys were planning on talking about Vonley or Kevin Gelly or any of that, but I think both of them are more intriguing players to me simply because of some of their tools. I think both of them offer that kind of rim defense, like shooting combination, which I think is no surprise. They have three guys that kind of fit that, like you guys could be a backup, right? Rotational, you know, kind of three point shooting and defensive, uh, you know, center um, type of mold. But like, I definitely think Cornette has the intelligence and I think he has the inside edge um, on both of those guys, but I don't think it's so substantial that either one of them couldn't, couldn't easily take him. Right. Um, and Vonley might be making a play for that right now. Terrible luck getting an ankle tweak, but sometimes <laughs> that's the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I, I think we, we were definitely planning on jumping into Vonley because I think today or last night they gave him a, non-guaranteed minimum contract so he seems to be in the plans for this season and i think he, what so vonley if if you don't know eric i know you do i'm talking to the audience here vonley was actually a pretty high draft pick and he just kind of has never figured it out i mean he's fairly athletic he's got skills like his skill set is solid he can kind of dribble he can kind of shoot it uh, so, like, why hasn't he caught on anywhere? Do you do you have like any insight to why he hasn't flourished into a consistent role player at the NBA level? Yeah, um, I have theories. Obviously, like everybody else does. Um, I think first and foremost, going back to my, you know, this is like a prime sports aptitude, you know, evaluation, uh, you know, guy, uh, and I worked with Charlotte uh, for a long time. Um, I'm a big believer in situational development. I, I think that's gotten a lot trendier. I'd like to take some kind of credit for it by beating that drum forever, but I've been like Mr. Hashtag Situation Matters for like 15 <laughs> years. Um, but, uh, but the context of development is not just fitting the skills, right? There's a million things that go into that. It's the, it's the construct of the roster itself and where the, you know, we always hear about, career arcs and everything in terms of lining up windows but like that also goes into agendas and what people are looking for and how people come together right like there's a go on and on but i think that one of the biggest things with Vonley is not everybody is designed to be <laughs> to be situation proof and Vonley landed himself in a bunch of situations that did not yeah. have a lot of stability. And so you're getting constant roster churn. I think he would have done much better being going to a situation that had a little bit more long-term continuity and let him develop, uh, you know, kind of slowly because I don't think he was ever going to be a very, he was a one and done if I, if I remember yeah. correctly out of, out yeah. of Indiana and he wasn't really ready for that. Um, like most guys aren't, but when you couple that with some of those other factors, he did bounce around a lot into a lot of situations that were by definition kind of transient, right? So I think that has a lot to do with it. That one year on the Knicks, I don't remember yep. what season that was on, on that one, though he really caught my eye. And I remember uh, Kevin O'Connor and I were both chatting about him as we had some weird infatuation with him, I guess, that year or whatever. But I remember – he got on a he had a really promising season uh, or half season or whatever when he got the opportunity. It looked like he was really starting to put it together. And then again, 
bumped around and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of disappeared. So, you know how, like, there's what, 512, whatever the, whatever the official uh, count is on uh, the amount of players on the roster, but there's like a thousand guys that are qualified to play in the NBA. And I think what you, what you see is that if you're not, you know, standard distribution, right? Once you get to the NBA level, there's a very few guys on that upper tail that basically stand out so much on potential and ability that they're just going to get opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Most of the time, guy, you see a guy and he gets to about 24, 25. Kevin Gelly also falls into this uh, category and you're like, yeah, there'll be another one. And I think that happens a lot where you don't invest uh, right in like getting the max out of somebody because you just figure you'll kick the tires on the next younger model and maybe you'll get a better result. And that's just kind of standard operating procedure in the league. Yeah, absolutely. Spoonie's cat in particular seems to be particularly <laughs> ridiculous. By the conversation, I, I don't know if that if that bodes well or poorly for Vonley, but the, the cat is certainly intrigued. I'm getting um, alphaed right now by my cat. <laughs> uh, Eric, probably almost certainly jumping the gun here, and just to transition slightly, but it seems an obvious and clear assessment that the Celtics are one rotation rotation piece short, rather. Um, and an easy way to remedy that might be with the Gallo contract when it can be traded in December sometime. Um, is there anyone that you personally think that the Celtics should keep an eye on? And we, we can toss out some name suggestions there if that's going to help. Um, so it's really interesting because, I, you know, I, what I already said, I'm always first on internal development because I just think, you know, a new guy doesn't even know where the bathroom is, right? He doesn't know where his apartment is. Like new hires are a pain in the butt. To, to onboard and get up and you might not get your ROI if it's not a if it's not a key you know like a key star guy I think you've seen diminishing returns because of all those things that we talked about so I think that there's a lot of intrigue on what is currently on the roster versus what you can get for even cobbling together guys that like I don't want to get into like you know, we could trade one of the guard, like we'd have to know a lot more about the roster before we get into big moves. So if we're talking about moves on the margins, I'm not sure if anything is super intriguing. However, I saw somebody in the, in the chat say something about Wembonyana. Hey, there we go. Is this about, uh, thanks for stealing my line. Lucy Wiltshire. <laughs> Lucy got in first. PJ Washington <laughs> has been an infatuation of mine since his uh, draft year. Um, and if I'm looking at this whole, are teams that might be, you know, kind of racing to for lottery position going to just like spit out players that they're like, okay, cool. We'll just get rid of something and like get an, a draft asset in the future or whatever. PJ Washington would be on my short list of guys that's intriguing as a potential, like not an Al Horford successor, but a guy that is at the talent level where I'd be like, hey that would be definitively additive, right? As a, as a, you know, developmental piece. I think he's accomplished enough to, at, at his age, to want to invest in putting him in a system like this, where I'm like, okay, you, we could really lean into letting you kind of hone your game and kind of build around stuff that really works for, you know, this kind of contending core. He's somebody that would be super interesting to me on like, what could you do to impact winning on a team that's basically looking at, three to five possessions of impact a game are like the difference between a championship and not. Mm-hmm. 
Man, when you put it like that, it's so painful to think about, but <laughs> three to five possessions. Um, uh, no one wants to hear me talk about PJ Washington because I, <laughs> similarly to you, am obsessed that I think he would be such an incredible fit and he's age appropriate. And to answer our guy Z Gamer, thanks for stopping my man as always. The Hornets are cheap as hell. They're going to have to re-sign Rozier. You know, they're, the, the LaMelo Max is looming. And they're going to be terrible. So they may not want to pay PJ Washington what he's going to command. And they have made similarly short-sighted moves in the past. So um, I think that is why potentially PJ could be on the move. There was talks of them moving him uh, at the deadline this past year. I don't know how real those were. I don't know if you have any insight, Eric, but I know his name came up quite a bit. Yeah, I think that he was—he was probably a, a lot. Most guys are up for grabs, right? You always hear that from the GMs, but like people, almost every guy in the league can be had for the right price. I, I think the more interesting thing is the philosophical team building side, which is like you—you you know that that uh, teams tend to value their own, you know, their own uh, players more than the league because they have more insight into them. But I actually think um, teams should be more aggressive at trading, like first round picks for young players in like in that mold that are kind of like on their rookie contracts or maybe undervalued relative to what you thought the talent was and then scouting what might be some of those factors that led to maybe delayed development because when you look at going back to the same thing I said with Vonley when you look at what the average outcome is for a lot of guys that you know pick like 20 and beyond a lot of times you're just going to end up in the same place four years later. And so I think that it's like the acquisitions on that side are more interesting for the Celtics. I don't know how realistic it is because you literally are looking at Grant Williams, who's accomplished more, I guess. I don't know. PJ's done some interesting things. I think situation again, matters significantly. Like he hasn't had an opportunity to, you know, to produce in, in, you know, in a Celtics environment, but, um, it makes it a little squirrely because I'm like, Art, why would you be acquired? You know, how does that look? Right. Um, but that's why we need to understand, like, does Hauser actually translate shooting wise? Because if not, then maybe they're really looking for, you know, they're really looking for, you know, a shooting wing. Um, there's just too hard to, to say right now what makes a lot of sense. But in a future where they're going to go, where I'm thinking they're going to go small more, I'd be looking at acquisitions in that kind of PJ Washington mode on the, on the four side to try if, if they could, you know, Larry Nance jr. Was a guy I was looking at a couple of years ago, like just trying to figure out how you could play two bigs. Um, but I think that the future is most likely going small, because there's just more smaller people of talent available in the world than larger people of talent. Like, and so I think that it makes it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's more likely that you're probably looking at, you know, things like that, like, like getting a shooter or something like that and leaning more into the Jays playing up more frequently and then having some kind of like neat 18 minute, you know, 15 to 18 minute, like, you know, kind of situational, you know, situational big stuff. A lot's riding on Rob, honestly, he's probably the biggest X factor X factor of them all because he changes the entire dynamic. If he, I don't think he's ever going to be quote unquote healthy. Like, I don't think he's a guy that ever plays 82 games. You could say nobody should play 82 games, you know, hashtag 66 game season. <laughs> but um, that would be, that's a huge one. How he, 
you know, kind of like uh, what that looks like, because what it's looked like so far is you're holding your breath, right? Everything looked uh, yeah. rosy last year. And then you're heading into the playoffs and you're like, oh, my friend Dave texted me right away. One of the smartest guys. And I was like, oh, well, I guess the season's over. <laughs> like, <laughs> after that you know, I had trouble making a compelling argument to keep him happy. I'm like, they're really good and everything. But I'm like, there's no doubt he's the biggest ceiling raiser, you know, on the team and the numbers bared out were they plus 30 in the minutes in the finals in the finals where they were exhausted they were gassed they were generating absolutely no offense and they were turning the ball over you just sprinkled some magic rob on there and they were a plus 30 (laughs) in that disaster of a six game series so like his ability to add to win impact winning is cannot be understated for what this team's you know future and present is yeah, between Rob's health and Brogdon's health and their collective injury potential, I think that might be the most uh, anxiety-inducing factor of the season for fans going into this one. I want to throw one more name at you, Eric, before we move on as far as like what might fit into the, the Gallo contract and a trade, uh, and it fits into this sort of small ball idea. Uh, Jared Vanderbilt from Minnesota, 23-year-old, power forward, 6'9", personally struggled to see how Minnesota would be willing to relinquish him in any trade. He's on Utah now. For them. He's on Utah. Apologies. <laughs> Basketball reference. <laughs> they totally I need to update their him. website. <laughs> <laughs> they totally relinquished him. All right. Well, nuts to that narrative. Um, regardless, uh, do you think that that's someone that the Celtics might look at acquiring with the, with the Gallo uh, contract? So he's super interesting. Uh, he obviously does not provide that like shooting upside. And it seems like for obvious reasons your ideal situation is have a center right that can that can shoot threes and defend um what i'm really fascinated i think he got a couple defensive uh all defensive votes uh last year if i'm not mistaken Mm -hmm. um and he's had a little bit of an injury history himself by the way he had a nice healthy season last year but um but that tends to make guys more available at a cheaper price also uh, I love him as a handcuff for Rob going back to the same thing. He's like, well, how does this work? I'm like, well, in a world where Rob exists and I'm not trading him yet for like DeAndre Ayton or something, you know, cashing out at high and being like, oh my Ooh. God, like my heart can't take any more of this. Um, I love having a guy that is there. I, I don't think those two can play together, but almost like if you're looking at, you know, there are 48 minutes, I could see. I'd rather have two guys available for 24 minutes with very little yep. fall off playing an entire season than trying to like ride one dude until he hits the IR and then hopefully having a backup. So I could definitely make an argument. What I'm really interested in, in Utah is how they'll use him because he has a lot of like grab and go, like kind of like pseudo like or theoretical playmaking abilities, obviously a great rebounder. In a situation like Utah, which clearly looks like they're going with the fun and gun tank, which is always the best tank for sure. You don't want to go on the our offense only scores 76 points a game tank. Terrible tank. Uh, you can't get people to come out to the games, you know, on, on that tank. Um, <laughs> if they're going to play fast and loose uh, and kind of just develop players in a very fun context, I would be really hopeful that he a sees the court a decent amount, which I think he will, because I think they know that they can get at least a first round pick for him. So it makes no sense for him not to be a guy that gets a lot of run because he's not a secret to anybody. And what I would think would be really interesting is if they give him a context where he can increase his value by showing some, you know, some tricks that he hasn't necessarily been able to show in other contexts. So I would definitely have my eye on him, but more so 
for those reasons, right? As a, as a Rob handcuff and as a, I kind of intrigued to watch Utah's season this year because they have a, a very interesting yard sale collection of players that they might allow to do a lot of things that you don't necessarily, you know, think that those guys can do based on previous incarnations. Yeah. Uh, do you think he's got any like the Rob short role playmaking? Um, I know you said he can kind of grab and go a little bit. I'm not super familiar with Vanderbilt's game. I watched a little bit of Minnesota last year, but that was a weirdly constructed team with Russell and Ant basically dominating the ball. And if they didn't have it, Cat did. So uh, do you know if he's got any of that to his game? Because that is like one of the things I feel like Rob brings that the ball just pops when Rob's in there because they put two on the ball in the pick and roll. And then Rob can kind of make a play once the pass hits him. So if Vandy has that, I think that definitely makes him very interesting. Uh, I That's definitely a KOC question. I will hold <laughs> him up as the like biggest cheerleader of Jared Vanderbilt ever. He was way early on that one. You can go back in the Twitter timeline. Like he is definitely other than like Jared's family members and maybe coaches, like definitely <laughs> the biggest, uh, the biggest Jared Vanderbilt fan that I know. Um, nobody is like Rob's I've been a huge supporter of Rob as like a mid post facilitator, not just high post, but like really getting down there where he's like one dribble away because he doesn't have a great deal of footwork, but he is so dangerous as a passer at his height. And with those mitts, uh, just being able to survey the weak side of the court, like I'm a big you know, a big believer in evolving the offense to do more stuff where Rob facilitates in positions where he can then, you know, just take one dribble, uh, which is almost anywhere because his stride and explosiveness is so high. So I don't think Jared is on, I don't think there's very many people on that level where I consider Rob's like, you know, passing ability. I think he's, I think he could average six assists a game in some incarnation of himself where you know everyone didn't want to keep him in bubble wrap and not have him do anything on one side of the court uh which i'm slightly suspicious is the reason we don't see as much as we think we should on offense is maybe they're just like no you literally are only allowed to to be active on one side of the court um but there's play you know anytime you can get a big that has any sense of what's going on around them like that's still probably the most precious commodity like the the idea of of point center in any way shape or form right facilitating center is like such a game changer in the half court offense because it allows you to completely invert it's like when Gary Payton used to run you know the point from the post but he was literally a point guard doing that if you can get you can get bigs to you know to facilitate that like Marc Gasol we saw it all the time but that changes everything those teams that Gasol did that on Oh, we're yeah. not amazing offensive teams with the individual talent. He, at his prime, was like captaining a ton of stuff by simply being amazing. Chris, old school Chris Weber, if we go way back, right? Like that team had a lot of talent. But like when you can get playmaking from a stationary big um, to the point where they draw, def- you know, defense, uh, defensive attention and they have to pay attention, that's a special thing. So I don't know how readily available that is, but I do like Jared for a lot of reasons, and I'm hopeful we'll see a new version of him. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, Transitioning again slightly just before we wrap up here, Eric, what are your expectations for the upcoming season? I think it's reasonable 
to imagine that most people's expectations dipped in September with the Rob additional surgery and the extended timeline there. And then obviously the EMA news. But then since then, you know, it's preseason, but the team has looked especially dynamic. What are your expectations for, you know, broadly speaking, how far they can go and um, where you think they might finish up in the upcoming season? So I'll say regular season wise, I think the regular season um, results should be relatively the same. I do think that if they were completely healthy the entire year, even sans Rob right now, um, I think that they could do a lot. A lot of, a lot of winning in the regular season is about motivation. And I think that this team seems like they're motivated uh, to, you know, to improve off of last year, even how maddeningly inconsistent they were at looking like they could keep an edge. Um, they're just so good. But as you said, this team is built with a bunch of guys that missed time. So also with that guard, you know, people are like, why are you keeping Peyton Pritchard? Well, aside from keeping options in case you want to trade one of those guys, I will put money. I'm not a gambler. I'll put money down right now that Peyton gets into like 40 plus games this year, not garbage time, because I just don't see those three guards. If they're going to play intensely, even with limiting their, you know, their individual, like there's going to be injuries and the wing depth, is thin and guys will have to, you know, Jalen is, 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 you know, usually is like, there are a lot of guys that getting through an 82 game season is a thing. And so there's going to have to be a lot of managed rest and all that. And I think that puts, you know, somewhat of a cap, especially when you couple that with a bunch of teams gunning for them as one of the two finalists, like you're going to get an A effort most nights from your opposition and you're not going to have your A squad out there all the time. So I think that you know, I'm in that like 50, 55 win category because I'm just, I know how good they can be, but I have no idea who's going to be the eight guys on the, on the court over 82 games. And, and that's a big factor. Um, but I think that's actually a blessing in disguise. Again, going back to the Rob stuff, some people have said, but like, they need to see more of Grant Williams. They need to see if they have some backup stuff that, you know, right. For the, for what comes in the next iterations. Like, I do think that that's really exciting being able to use the regular season to not only prep for the postseason, you know, with, with uh, scheduled rest and also expanding, you know, role opportunities when guys have rest and all that. But um, if they get to the playoffs with everybody healthy, uh, I think that having a third option scorer, it's not the ball handling is awesome. Everybody focus on that, but having a bona fide third guy, to close a dude that like, yes, he was a number, whatever being a number one is like, not all number ones are created equal. That guy can (laughs) score the ball. And there was only two guys that could score the ball. There were guys that could get hot and shoot themselves into scoring a decent amount. But like the Jays had so much pressure on them to produce at an efficient level of offense. Forget about the facilitation. Like they had like, if Jason, had a bad shooting night, which obviously he got exhausted and he got less consistent as it went along. And I think that that that's completely reasonable, but that's why teams have that. That is what a third option scoring right. option <laughs> is for. Is so like you have three guys. So if one guy has an off night, there's still another guy. And last year it was like, as if like that month and a half that Marcus went like supernova last year, they like won every game. Because it's like, hey, if you're going to get 18 points a game consistently from another guy with that defense, it's going to be hard to beat them. So now I look at it and I'm like, you get in the playoffs. You have a dude that basically 
can score 18 points a game with that 75% of the time kind of consistency that you want. If they're deep, if they're healthy enough to put out that starting defense, like I really want to see that Milwaukee series again, but yeah, Chris Middleton, but I'm like, yeah, cool. And then this team also has a third option scorer. I think that matchup changes on both sides of that equation. And that's why the, that's why the Bucks got drew holiday because they yep. needed that level of consistency as an offense. And it's basically, well, ironically, it's because they let the guy that they already had go, uh, which is Malcolm <laughs> Brogdon. Um, but like, that's a really juicy thing to think about in the playoffs because it is nice to have another guy that can reach those heights and the floor is much more consistent than like two of 12, which was basically whoever the third option du jour was, was just as likely, you know, to, to do nothing. Yeah. And it's not smart's fault. Like being forced into a role above, you know, HR again, being, you know, uh, promoted a level above competency or whatever, like that he's not a third option scorer. Right. Right. He's a lot of things. He's not a third option scorer, great facilitator. He's not a pure scorer. Um, So when he does score, that's gravy. And that's just you drubbing the other team. But Brogdon is built to do it night in and night out. And that means they have three of them. And for the playoffs, I'll take that if all three of them, you know, health permitted. And I think that they can they can stack up against anybody. And then it will be, you know, we'll see. We'll see where they go. Yeah, and having like the smart Derek White, Grant Williams, Al Horford, and Rob sort of mix of one of these guys, probably two or three of these guys are going to have a good game and be sort of the fourth scorer for you, as opposed to having to needing one of them to be your third scorer is such a benefit. It's going to go such a long way and it raises the ceiling of this team, I think, to a pretty scary level. And you brought up the Bucks. Speaking of the Bucks, kind of. Great other segue. than, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Nailed it. Uh, <laughs> uh, other than the Bucks, who's the biggest threat to the Celtics? And then we could wrap up after you answer this one for for us, Eric. In the Eastern Conference. Eastern Conference. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with the East because I think that once if you get to the finals, it's like it's a seven game sample. Like yep. so many things can happen. So yep. I like. I think I think Philadelphia. I think this is actually Philadelphia's year. I think it's become like comical because you're so used. It's like Groundhog Day. So we're like, ha they'll blow it. <laughs> I don't think so. And I'm probably one of the biggest Tyrese Maxey like fans that like in existence. I mean, I literally <laughs> emailed Rich Paul during his draft. I won't tell you what I was, but I love Tyrese Maxey. <laughs> I thought Tyrese Maxey was going to be a really, really good play, like a starting caliber player. Like he was easily a top eight guy for me. Um, not shocked. Uh, he was another one of those guys that had a bad, you know, whatever, like recency bias, like things didn't work. And so, you know, you're like, oh, but, you know, the college season didn't go. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think there's some other reasons, right? Like stuff happens. Situational, right? Context-based. Um, he's a huge ceiling guy. I think that, James Harden wants to get paid, which is always a good season to have James Harden, right? Like, I think that that's a, that's a real thing. Um, they obviously have injury issues also, but, like, that team is loaded. They added a, gr- a lot of stuff at the margin. I think uh, D'Anthony Melton was a really underrated acquisition. He really came into his own over the last couple of years, and they got him 
like the, the fully realized version of him is like a, yeah. is a really nice player. And that was a kind of an undersold addition. That team's nice. That team's real good. And I think a lot of people are just kind of banking on that, like mental image of them failing for reasons, but like Ben Simmons isn't there anymore. And I'm not going to bash Ben Simmons, but like he's not there. And Joel Embiid <laughs> is a baller when he is healthy and they've got a lot of good pieces around him. So like, I don't think they're a two star team by any stretch. If you get even a solidly decent facilitating heart, right? Like he could be a third option scorer. I don't think you need supernova Harden because I think Tyrese Maxey with the type of attention, right? We were talking about the same thing with the Celtics too, with Brogdon. It's the diffusion of defensive attention that really activates a lot of these like yeah. ancillary players. And that's what I see with that team is I'm like, they have a lot of stuff that helps the other players like be better than they are individually. And I think that's true for both, um, both uh, Boston and Philadelphia and Milwaukee too. But I think there's a lot that intrigues me about Philly, which is obviously scary, um, but hopefully leads to an amazing uh, series in the playoffs because I, you know, Milwaukee's cool, but I'd much rather have a seven game series against Philadelphia because again, like I said, child of the child of the eighties, that would be, um, that would be <laughs> very, very rewarding. Yeah. All right, Eric. Well, you've been extremely gracious with your time, man. This has Absolutely. been really awesome. So we really appreciate it. You can tell the people where they can find you. Uh, well, I could put in at Eric Weiss underscore SA on Twitter. I occasionally rant or make uh, sarcastic comments to my friends <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, other than that, you can everyone can uh, feel free to check out Lucio Sports. Won't make a lot of sense to anybody. It was basically just looks like play diagrams, but we do a lot of uh, ed tech in uh, in the sports realm, and it's pretty cool. Um, so I'd say keep your eyes out on that and for what's to come, uh, because I think that you see a lot of cool stuff there and a lot of stuff that makes a significant difference in what you see on the court, uh, which is really just like knowing what to do by retaining more information. So you can keep keep your eyes peeled for Lucio Sports. I think we're doing some interesting things this season. Awesome, man. And yeah, seriously, thanks again for joining us. And Ben, as always, love your work, mate. That's going to do it for this one. Yeah.